2: Britain has announced plans to strip technology made by Huawei from its 5G network. What does this mean for the future of the Chinese company? Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show... Is a phase two trade deal between China and America really off the table?
0: Given all the turmoil out there in the world, the Trump administration is probably going to want to avoid things that, that roil the markets even further.
2: And a slow bull in the china shop. The most beautiful
3: sound you could have after the pandemic is the sound of you know the bulls stampeding through the markets.
2: First, the British government has today confirmed that the country will ban Huawei from its 5G network.
4: From the end of this year, telecoms operators must not buy any 5G equipment from Huawei. We have concluded that it is necessary and indeed prudent to commit to a timetable for the removal of Huawei equipment from our 5G network by 2027.
2: Britain is one of many countries in the West debating how much access Huawei should have to telecoms networks. Up until now, the government had resisted pressure from America and from some British MPs to ban Huawei outright. But now it's made a U-turn.
4: The reason the British government has changed its mind, if you read things narrowly, is that its technical assessment of Huawei has changed. Patrick Farrells is The Economist's business affairs editor. It has this group of spooks who look at the technical security risks around Huawei. And they now argue that because there's an American embargo on the company for some components, it's going to be harder for Britain to assess whether Huawei's software and equipment is safe. The reality is what's actually happening is a bigger political story, and that's Britain's estrangement from China and China's own further lurch towards autocracy with its actions in Hong Kong being the most recent example. So if you like, there's a technical fig leaf here that disguises a bigger geopolitical estrangement.
2: And I suppose part of that estrangement is to do with Hong Kong, where Britain's already angered China by offering up to 3 million people there a path to British citizenship. So it must face the risk now of Chinese sanctions. But what form might those take?
4: Yes, that's right. I mean, China has been very keen to make clear that countries using Huawei who change their minds and follow American advice to take it out of their networks will face consequences in terms of the trade relationship with China. Britain, uh, a few years ago, was talking about a golden era of trade with China, and that that now looks like it's long gone. I mean, the reality is China's relationship with Britain is of middling importance. So it's about 6% of Britain's trade. And a number of very big British multinational companies make a lot of money in China and have close links with it. All of that could be put at risk. Is it devastating for Britain? No, of course not. But it does mark another difficult factor in Britain's economic relationship with the world. It's now estranged from Europe, and it appears estranged from the world's second biggest economy.
2: But does it have a certain safety in numbers here? I mean, Britain's not out on a limb on this, is it? It's joining a number of other countries, taking the same stance on 5G and Huawei.
4: Yes, it's true that Britain is not completely alone. So the US is there, and then Australia and Japan have already, in effect, prohibited Huawei. It seems likely that Canada now follows and France has signalled that it will gradually dial down the use of Huawei in its 5G networks. Germany is a little bit less sure. It has a much tighter economic and export relationship with China, which means the trade-off is different. So Britain isn't alone. On the other hand, it does have a particular importance because of Britain's intelligence capabilities, which meant it was viewed as the country most able to assess Huawei's security. And the fact that Britain used Huawei in turn gave, I think, probably a bigger group of countries confidence that they could use it without having Chinese spies snooping on everyone. So for China, Britain's change of mind probably has a broader ripple effect in terms of other countries' perceptions of the security of using Huawei gear.
2: So it's quite a blow for Huawei and will have quite a big impact on the global telecoms market.
4: Yes, well, it seems to be a kind of bifurcation. So I think in Europe, what you'll see is the two uh, European equipment makers, Ericsson and Nokia, see a big uptick in orders as more European countries use them. Obviously, Huawei doesn't really operate in America already. The intriguing thing is really what happens beyond America's close allies. And there's vanishingly little sign so far that uh, the many Huawei users in Africa, Asia, Latin America are suddenly about to ditch it.
2: What about businesses beyond telecoms? Are there others where the growing antipathy towards the Chinese state is going to have an impact in global markets?
4: Well, I think what we're seeing is sort of the collapse of a rules-based trading system. And part of that process is things like tariffs. But part of it also is individual companies becoming flashpoints in a broader spat. And Huawei is one example. TikTok, a Chinese-owned social networking app that America and India are keen Uh, to ban is another. You might even point to global banks operating in Hong Kong that may now be subject to American sanctions over China's new security law there. So what you're seeing is an escalating number of industries sort of sucked into the trade war. Clearly, that diminishes the potential for open trade, but it also creates these Weird and somewhat uneasy escalations in in the tensions between the superpowers and other countries as the corporate situation kind of um, bleeds into the political disputes in in a somewhat uh, disheartening way.
2: In that very big picture, you hint at quite a bleak future for Huawei. I mean, is there anything the company itself can do to rebuild trust in itself and its technology?
4: Well, I think it's possible to argue that there could have been an alternative path for Huawei, um, which I think it's not chosen to take. And that would have been to very much internationalise its ownership, its board of directors, its executives, do much more to effectively operate like a multinational company like Utilever or Shell, where elaborate efforts are made to win the trust of lots of foreign companies. It hasn't really done that. It's sort of stuck to its particular identity, which is at the end of the day, very Chinese. So what is it going to do now? Well, uh, it needs in the short term to make sure it can still buy components on the international market and find ways around the American embargo, which is not a total embargo, but is more one that does make it fairly tricky for it to get certain semiconductors and things like that. Beyond that, obviously, China is now on a huge drive to completely indigenize the production of technology components. And in that scenario, Huawei will end up really as a sort of self-contained Chinese champion with a completely domestic supply chain and a footprint that is consistent with China's uh, sphere of influence in Asia and in the emerging world.
2: Patrick Fells, thanks very much.
4: Thanks for having me, Simon.
2: Next, the row over Huawei is not the only sign that relations between America and China are in very bad shape. China's foreign minister has said they're worse than they've ever been since the two countries normalized ties back in 1979. That augurs ill for a phase two trade deal between America and China, which President Donald Trump looked forward to when the initial trade agreement was signed in January. We'll start uh, right
1: away Negotiating phase two, it'll take a little time. I think I might want to wait to finish it till after the election, because by doing that, I think we can actually make a little bit better deal, maybe a lot better deal.
2: Now, he said he's no longer considering a phase two agreement, describing the relationship between America and China as severely damaged. So, is a second deal out of the question?
0: U.S.-China relations at the moment are not good, I think is the understatement of the year.
2: Samaya Keynes is our trade and globalisation editor.
0: You've got all sorts of different problems. You've got tensions over human rights. We've got the Trump administration imposing sanctions on Chinese Communist Party officials. We've got Beijing imposing counter-sanctions. Concerns about the national security law in Hong Kong accusations that Chinese apps are being used to to spy on on American citizens, and then claims that China could have stopped the virus even. And then finally, tensions over, over the implementation of the phase one trade deal, which was heralded as this great success back in January, all those months ago.
2: Turning to the phase two trade deal, it seems fair to assume that's completely dead. I know President Trump said he wasn't even thinking about it at the moment.
0: It's dormant. After the Phase 1 deal was signed, I don't think anyone expected Phase 2 to be around the corner. I think at the time, while the president was very keen that things would get going straight away, Robert Lighthizer, the United States trade representative, who'd actually negotiated the Phase 1 deal, He was much more cautious, saying, you know, well, partly we need to see how this phase one goes, right? Do the Chinese actually live up to their promises, right? Trust was just so low between the two sides that arguably you needed to wait and see, are they engaging in good faith? Now, with everything else that's happening, I just don't think there's any political appetite to do another deal. If the markets are tanking, it's probably more to do with the fact that we've got a global pandemic than any incremental tariff changes on the cards.
2: What do you see as the particular obstacles to getting further in trade negotiations?
0: On the economic side, it's just such a mammoth task. Trust is very low. And there are also still questions about whether the phase one deal is being implemented, That there's just not a huge appetite to start running down the phase two negotiation track. And from the president's perspective, he's clearly very upset with the Chinese. And so talking up Fruitful negotiations isn't something that he sees as being politically advantageous at this point.
2: You say there's still questions over whether the phase one commitments are being met, but they're not, are they? The president would say China's not going to meet its purchase commitments under that phase one agreement, is it?
0: Yeah, so those purchase agreements were over the entire year. So we're actually only going to find out if it's met them potentially after the Trump administration has maybe been booted out of office. If you look at the targets and you essentially assume that the purchases would be made evenly throughout the year, then over the first five months of the year, that's the the data that we have, the purchases are badly behind schedule. So I think they've bought less than half of what they was supposed to have bought if you assumed that those purchases would happen evenly. Now, obviously, there are many more months of the year, so there could be a sudden surge. But there are a number of voices in, in the US who are raising questions about America's capacity to supply some of these products, particularly in energy. Now, obviously, in theory, the Chinese could bid up the price. So it was a bazillion dollars per barrel, and then they'd hit them just fine. <laughs> but so far, we haven't seen any evidence of that.
2: And just remind us, what what are the most important products that China's promised to buy?
0: They haven't been that specific because they didn't want people to try and game it. But, you know, it's the big things that China was already buying from the US, things like soybeans, energy products, natural gas, LNG, that kind of thing.
2: What about the tariffs? I mean, obviously, over the Trump presidency, we've seen tariffs imposed on a wide range of of Chinese imports and and China reciprocating. Are they still in place? How's that affecting business and, and the mood?
0: Yep, they're still in place. I mean, you know, the vast majority of them are, are still in place. If you look at what's been happening to US imports from China, then, you know, that they, they've been falling fairly consistently. And obviously, the COVID pandemic has interacted with that. If you look at imports of of face masks. That's actually bucking the trend. Imports of those have been increasing. But yeah, there are calls for for further negotiations so that some of these tariffs can be lifted. The USTR has faced a lot of pressure to lift tariffs on medical products, on, on things that could help tackle the pandemic. But I don't think those tariffs are going anywhere anytime soon, particularly listening to the noises coming out of the Biden campaign. And so I think you know business is just well, number one, coping with the pandemic, and number two, trying to make plans for how to deal with these tariffs in the medium term.
2: You mentioned that we have a presidential election coming up. And I was going to Ask whether China would just be sitting tight, hoping that this administration might lose the election, you'd get a new one. But from what you're saying, a Biden presidency might not be any better for the prospects of a phase two trade agreement.
0: No, I don't think it would. I think his style of dealing with China would be different. It would be less... Haphazard, you know, his administration would be packed with people who would understand the benefits of working with allies and coordinating and having clear communication. And so, you know, from, from that perspective, the, the Chinese shouldn't expect things to get much easier for them. Now, on the question of purchases, though, it is possible that the Biden administration would care less about the Chinese fulfilling those Uh, So if the Chinese are trying to wait out the Trump administration and and not fulfill the terms of that deal, perhaps the Biden administration won't be so keen to retaliate relative to a Trump administration.
2: So uh, it all sounds pretty bleak, Samir. Is there anything that might get trade talks back on track?
0: Yeah, I just don't think there's really a chance of serious negotiations happening before the election. At the moment, the rhetoric is is very anti-China. No one's saying that the Trump administration should really sink its teeth into these negotiations now. I think everyone's about the right degree of sceptical about the chances of getting major concessions from the Chinese. Given all the turmoil out there in the world, the Trump administration is probably going to want to avoid things that that roil the markets even further. So no phase two negotiations for now.
2: Samir, thank you very much.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: For lots more analysis on the relationship between China and the rest of the world, subscribe to The Economist. To get the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economist.com slash podcast offer. That's economist.com slash podcast offer, and the link is in the show notes.
1: A lot can happen
3: in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
1: And
2: finally, we stay with China. Despite its problems with America, its investors have been mostly in an upbeat mood. There are even suggestions that they're seeing the emergence of that rarest of beasts in Chinese stock market mythology, the slow bull. The past couple of decades have brought two fast bulls with giddying surges in share prices, neither lasting more than a year. Those soon led to fast bears when stocks crashed and eventually to slow bears as the descent became more gradual. But the slow bull, a steady, almost dependable rise year after year, has remained elusive. But could that be about to change?
3: The starting point about the stock market in China these days is that it's been you know, in quite the rally mode.
2: Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor based in Shanghai
3: it had risen as much as 16% in the month of July, up 30% from its low back in March. Now, that might sound quite excessive, but what's interesting about the rally this time and the reaction of regulators is that although they were initially in cheerleading mode, they've actually begun to lean against the rally a little bit in the last few days, which has taken a bit of the froth out of the market. And so it's one of those signs that market watchers looking at it say, well, this seems to be built on slightly more solid foundations than previous rallies, and regulators seem to be more on the ball uh, in terms of limiting the excesses that have plagued previous market rallies.
2: But surely with the coronavirus, the economy's not on that sound of footing, is it?
3: No, it isn't. I mean, clearly growth this year is going to be a lot slower than anybody had expected coming into the year. The thing with investing anywhere is that there's always a relative dimension to it, which is how is this market or this economy doing relative to other economies in the world? Where China stands apart from, you know, virtually every other major economy in the world now is that it has both got coronavirus more or less under control. It's shown that it's determined to snuff out you know, any second wave that might reemerge. And the economic recovery is fully underway right now, such that growth in the second quarter is actually quite likely to be positive in year-on-year terms. So for investors looking around, looking to find some place, some peg for certainty for the rest of this year into next year, China is one of the few big markets that offers that. Now, there certainly is concern that the rally has gotten too far ahead of reality because corporate profitability is still looking weak. But compared to other market rallies that we've seen in America and in Europe, there's more foundation in economic fundamentals for what's occurred in China.
2: But you're talking there about this year and next year. The slow bull presumably implies something that lasts a lot longer than that, doesn't it?
3: That's right. So as you said in the introduction, you know, China has had a series of what you might call fast bulls um, over the past 15 years. And they burn out very quickly because you just have this huge head of basically irrational exuberance that builds up. Tons of retail investors who account for about 80% of transaction volume pour into the market, And then it topples over under its own weight. This time, why things might be a little bit different are that, one, the government has created more mechanisms for companies to issue shares when the market is doing well. So you're already beginning to have supply of new share offerings coming into the market more quickly than in the past. And two, regulators have potentially learned some lessons from the market mistakes of the past 15 years. So notably, 2015 was the last time that China saw one of those manic bull runs. One of the factors feeding into that was margin borrowing. You had lots and lots of investors who borrowed from security brokerages and then poured that borrowed money into the market. This time around, they've been very quick to crack down on margin lending. It was beginning to increase quite a lot over the weekend. In fact, the regulators shut down nearly 200 different apps that were illegally providing that kind of financing to investors. So it seems that investors are, you know, though they might desire a very quick bull rally, they're facing regulators who are much more conservative than in recent years.
2: And presumably, investors must also be worried about all the international factors we've been discussing in this program that rouse over Huawei, trade with America, and so on.
3: They are, of course, in that this clouds China's economic potential and, and you know what it'll do in terms of tech development is clearly affected by all this. The trade war has, to a large extent, been priced into the Chinese market. It sold off very sharply in 2018, 2019. So investors feel that, to a certain extent, they've digested this kind of harsher geopolitical reality. And then the other thing is that with the tech blockade, if you will, gaining steam. China is pouring more and more money and effort into indigenous innovation. So you know, some of the stocks that have led the rally have been ones that are affiliated with China's push to develop its own semiconductor champions.
2: Simon, how is the official Chinese media, the financial press in China, reacting to all this? Is it egging investors on, or is it warning for a caution?
3: Well, this has been a really fascinating thing to observe because when the rally was just getting going, you did have state media. Go into full on cheerleading mode. You had, you know, for example, the front page of one of the main financial newspapers in the country saying that the most beautiful sound you could have after the pandemic is the sound of, you know, the bulls stampeding through the markets. And that whipped investors, you know, into a tizzy. And so you had tens of thousands of people opening up new accounts overnight, money pouring into the market, people borrowing on margin to invest. And then the penny seems to have dropped that. This is a really dangerous thing. They're playing with dynamite if they do this, because the rally will just get you know ahead of itself as it has you know time and again in the past. And so, in the last five days, in fact, the regulators have come out and they've urged investors to exercise caution. One has you know even come out to say that this kind of bull rally can be a meat grinder. It can grind up investors' assets. And so, you've now got the state media. I wouldn't say talking down the market, but trying to sort of prick some of the the bubble that was beginning to form before it got too big. So that's one more reason to think that, you know, this time might actually be a little bit different for China's market.
2: Simon Rubinovich, thanks very much for providing a nice clear voice about the thundering <laughs> herd. Yeah.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Simon.
2: Would like to say a huge thank you to everybody at the british podcast awards for choosing money talks as their best business podcast and congratulations also to our sister podcast the intelligence which won silver in the category of best current affairs podcast thank you for listening and you can give us your feedback on the show wherever you get your podcasts i'm simon long in london this is the Economist.